Amen. Jesus says, if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross exactly what Jesus has come to do because his mercy is more. These past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of First Peter. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can take it and turn there if you don't have a copy of the Bible, there should be one in the row, uh, in, in one of the chairs in front of you. Uh, you can grab that. We'll be on page 1014. First Peter's a letter written by one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, a man named Peter. And the whole purpose of Peter's letter is to give hope, uh, to give To tell people uh, who follow Jesus that because Jesus rose again from the dead, because Jesus came back to life, we have that same life. We have that same hope. Now, so that means this, right? And I said this at the beginning of the service, that the, the crucifixion and the resurrection are the defining, they are the message of the church. Uh, And so, uh, This morning, this may be the first time you've darkened the door of a church in years. I don't know. Um, But if if your thought is that the the message of Christianity and the message of the church is, do this, don't do that, then you have not heard correctly. The central message of the church is that God has done what we cannot do for ourselves. We cannot do that. All that we need to do. We cannot be good enough to earn God's love and favor. And so he came and did that for us in the person of his son, Jesus. And if you are in Jesus, he declares you righteous, completely acceptable to him. That is the message of Christianity. That is the message of the church. But along with that. We also see that crucifixion and resurrection are not just our, the message that we proclaim, but also it is, the, it is the reality that we live, right? The resurrection of Jesus means, yes, one day, someday, that if you are in Jesus, you too will be resurrected from the dead. It does mean that, but it doesn't just mean that. That resurrection hope actually works backward into the present to give new life and new hope to the people who follow Jesus. And that's what Peter is talking about. And so if you would turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be in verse 4, verses 4 through 10. Peter writes this, as you come to him. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, would you open our minds and hearts to understand your word? And would you transform us from the inside out? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter chooses a rather interesting message. We've been talking about First Peter now for a few weeks. And one of the things that we saw last week, that if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then that actually transforms the way that we live. And as he finishes up this closing section, uh, he, he uses this strange image to describe what, Je- what has happened to Jesus and what happens to those who follow Jesus. He, he says, as you come to him, that is Jesus, right? So you've tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, as you're coming to him, he calls him a living stone. That's not usually the way that we describe stones. In fact, often stones, right, are the definition of deadness, right? We say things like stone deaf uh, or stone cold, right? The, a stone is inanimate. Uh, a rock is not something we usually talk about as having life. So why does Peter pick that image? Why does he say that Jesus is a living stone? Uh, well, he's drawing on some Old Testament imagery, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament a number of the prophets use that image of a stone uh, to describe the Messiah who would one day come and rescue God's people. Uh, and he's called a cornerstone, one on whom God's house, God's kingdom would be built. So Peter takes that imagery from the Old Testament and applies it to Jesus. Now, he does that because that's what Jesus does. Jesus used some of these same Old Testament references to refer to himself. Which, if Jesus is not God, if Jesus is not Messiah, is a mighty bold thing to do. Uh, But Jesus applied those passages to himself. And so Peter, following his master's lead, is doing the same. But he calls him a living stone. Why does he say that he's living? It's actually pretty simple. Because Jesus is alive. He is not dead. He has risen from the dead. And that reality uh, now impacts everything else. Uh, And so this morning I want to see that there are three things that Jesus' resurrection gives us. Three things that Peter says Jesus' resurrection gives us. One, it gives us a new unity. It gives us a new community. And it gives us a new purpose. Jesus' resurrection gives us a new unity, or we could say union, a new community, and a new purpose. 
What do I mean? What, what do I mean when I say that Jesus' resurrection gives us a new unity? Well, the first thing that Peter does is he tells us something about Jesus. He says, as you come to him, there in verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious. So he tells us first about Jesus, that Jesus was rejected by men, but accepted by God. That uh, men found him to be uh, shameful and scandalous. They rejected him, but he is chosen and precious to God. He is accepted by God. That word precious also means honored. Now, Peter is referring to something that would be very familiar to a first century reader and would be familiar to many in the modern day as well. It's these ideas of shame and honor. In the first century world, uh, shame and honor ruled cultural life, right? Uh, Particularly in, in, and even still today in Middle Eastern and Far Eastern countries, shame and honor are huge, right? Uh, In in group cultures where the the needs of the group are more important than the individual, you want to live with honor and not with shame, right? You want to live in such a way that you honor your family, that you honor your country, not dishonor, not bring shame, right? To bring shame is to risk social rejection, social isolation, right? So you have these Concepts of shame and honor that were huge in first century life. They're still huge in parts of the world. Now, we would say that in the West, in more individualistic cultures, they don't play as huge a role. But I'm actually going to argue that shame and honor, even in our society, are right there underneath the surface. Right? Shame and honor is huge. Right? So if you live in a shame-honor culture, you are very slow to do something that would shame your family. You don't want to bring dishonor on yourself because that would bring dishonor on your family. And, you, and that would be kind of the, the, the greatest of sins would be to shame your family or to shame your nation. Uh, so, for instance, I was reading an article about Japanese culture. Uh, in Japanese culture, it is shameful uh, for men to show weakness. And so uh, when men have struggles at work, etc., they don't talk about it. Right. And what that means, uh, listening to uh, uh, this in this article, they were talking to a, a support line, a, a call line worker who who did mental mental health care support. Men, by the time they're in their middle ages, just are, are, are almost non communicative because it would be shameful to talk about those things that, they, that are perceived weaknesses. And so they just don't speak. Right. Shame and honor have a huge impact. You may have uh, heard about China's new social credit system, right, which is actually like almost like a, a digital uh, shame and honor system where if, you, where if you live by the rules of society, you get points, right? Your social credit score goes up, uh, and if you dishonor, right, if you do things that don't follow the rules, then your social credit score goes down, and you can even be blacklisted from society. Now... That may be something new, but that's actually tapping into something very old, all right? The, the, the Chinese government is just simply making use of something that's very deep in the heart of many people, uh, and that is the desire to not bring shame and dishonor, right? We, and, and I would argue that even in the free-thinking, 
individualistic Western world, we have the same exact struggle. Right? Why, why else would the like button matter so much to us? Why else would likes and shares be so incredibly powerful to our hearts if we didn't live to be accepted and not rejected? We want to be honored. We don't want to be rejected. And that's not just, uh, that's not just those who use social media, right? Even, even the oldest people in the room, uh, you have probably had experiences maybe where you did something, where your family disowned you, shamed you. Right, rejected you because of what you had done. You didn't follow uh, the protocol, and therefore you ended up on the outside. Right, so shame and honor play a huge part. And so what Peter says here is that Jesus is rejected by men. Uh, he does not follow the social order. He did not obey the law as the religious authorities in his day understood it. He was seen as a threat by the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders as a threat to social stability. And so he needed to be shamed. He needed to be ousted. He needed to be rejected. And he received the most shameful death you could receive in that day. He was crucified. He was hung up naked and bloody on a cross, a penalty that Rome could not even do to its own citizens. It was so heinous. It's marginally humorous that we wear crosses on our necks or tattoo them on our flesh. It would be something akin in the ancient world to taking a, a, an electric chair and hanging it around your neck or tattooing it on your skin. Right? The, the cross was a symbol of shame and rejection. Right? It would be like we don't, if, if we had a member of our family who was executed for crimes against the state, we wouldn't talk about it, right? That would be shameful. That would be scandalous. And yet, uh, that's exactly what happened to Jesus, right? He, he went as low as you could go. He was rejected by men, crucified. But, Peter says, he was chosen and honored by God. And so what we see is that God actually flips that whole shame-honor thing on its head, that the Jesus who was rejected by men was accepted by God. He was honored by God. And then Peter says, it's not just Jesus. But he actually draws a line between Jesus, the rejected stone, the rejected and honored stone, and his people. Look at, <coughs> excuse me, look at verse 6. It says, it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe or who trust. So G Peter draws a line between Jesus' status and the status of every person who trusts in him. Jesus' story now becomes, if, you're, if you are in Christ, if you are united to Jesus then Jesus' story becomes your story. You may be rejected by men, but you are accepted and honored by God. So, so God flips the, the honor-shame paradigm on its head and in essence says, be rejected by men. Be shamed. Right? In, in Jesus, right, Jesus frees us from shame. 
We no longer have to worry about the stigma of rejection because Jesus has accepted us. And God has accepted Jesus. So in the first century, right, there was a connection between shame and honor and religion and patriotism. Okay? Social, in the first century, the social order was dependent on you doing what you were supposed to do. You following the rules, you observing, right? Social order depended on religious forces. Now, this is a polytheistic society. And so there were multiple gods that could be worshipped, including Rome, right? The emperor also wanted to be worshipped. And so it was just part of social understanding that if, if, you, if, if everything was going to go along just fine, you need to worship your family gods and the emperor, and that was going to be it. And everything's good. But then these Christians come along, and they say, actually, we can't do that. We can't worship those gods we used to worship, and, and we can't give our allegiance to Caesar. We only give our allegiance to Jesus. And so what happens when you disrupt the social order, when you refuse to go along to get along? You're shamed. You're rejected, right? When you don't, when you don't vote for the right candidate, you're shamed. You're rejected. You're put outside, right? But what would they do, right? They would shame them, verbally abuse, demean, discredit, mock, pressure them into seeing how wrong that they were. And again, Peter flips that on its head. He shows them that because they are united to Jesus, they might be rejected by people, but they are chosen and honored by God. He says, whoever, quoting from Isaiah 28 and verse 6, he says, whoever trusts in this cornerstone will never be put to shame. And so if this morning you are trusting in Christ, God's honor is for you. You are accepted by God. You are as precious to God as his own son. You may be rejected by men. In fact, Paul, another New Testament writer, would say that's would call this the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. You will be rejected by men, but you will be honored and accepted by God. That is the new unity that we have in Christ. But that also brings with it a new community with others who are trusting in Christ. Go back up to verse 4. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So, Jesus is a living stone. And the same resurrection life that is in Jesus is now in the people who trust in Jesus. So that the living stone, everyone who builds their life on top of the living stone, what do they become? Living stones. And they are built into a spiritual house. What's Peter talking about? Well, Again, he's using an Old Testament image. He's using the image of the temple, which was God's house. It was the place where God lived, not Physically, but where an Israelite could go and meet with God through sacrifices. That happened at the Lord's house. What Peter is saying is that the Lord's house is no longer a physical place with physical stones, but is actually a group of people 
living stones inhabited by the Spirit. When you see that word spiritual, capitalize it. Spiritual house means a house lived in by the Holy Spirit. The temple in Jerusalem had been replaced by a group of people lived in by the Holy Spirit. So no longer is God to be worshipped in a physical location. He's worshipped in a group of people. The church is not a building, right? We, we've said this before, that if a, if a tornado wipes it out tomorrow, that wipes this physical building out tomorrow, the church does not cease to exist because the church is a group of living stones built on the living stone. That is our identity. That's who we are. We are a unity of living stones connected to each other. And here's at least one thing that that means. Peter doesn't say we're a group of scattered stones in the field. We are a group of living stones being built together into a spiritual house. There is a unity, a community that we have in Christ. We fit together one on top of the other. We are a spiritual house of living stones. But then he also talks about their new identity in verse 9. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What's he talking about? Those are all words, again, from the Old Testament. They come uh, from the book of Exodus, where God has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to himself, and he gives them this new identity. He calls them his own possession, his treasured possession. And they are to be to him a holy nation, a royal priesthood. What do some of those things mean? First, they're chosen, not rejected. They're a chosen nation. In fact, God says, I've chosen you out of all the earth. All the earth is mine, but you I have chosen out of the earth. You are my special people. And he says that they are a royal priesthood. All right, well, what is... What does that mean? What does a what is what does priest do? Well, priest would stand between God and man. Right? They would represent God to men and they would represent men to God. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. The fancy word for that is mediator. They were the go-between. Well, here Peter says that God's people are a royal priesthood. That means they they stand between the king the true king, and the rest of the world. They are to mediate God's kingly presence to the rest of the world. We represent God to the rest of the world. How's that for scary? Right? And I think this morning that many of you could even share that your experience of Christians has probably been less than exemplary. That, man, that didn't feel like a royal priesthood, right? But that's what Peter calls us. That's our identity. He says a, a holy nation, a people who are set apart. And then he says a people who are owned or possessed by God. You are my possession. In verse 10 he says this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. A dramatic change has happened. And he's actually quoting again from the Old Testament, the book of Hosea. But he says, once 
You are not a people. You didn't belong, but now you're my people. Once you stood on the outside, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God has brought us in. In fact, just a phrase before that, he said he's called us out of, his dark, out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has brought us to himself and made us one with Jesus and one with each other. We have a new unity. We have a new community. And because this is who we are, we also have a new purpose. He puts it this way in verse 5. He says to be a holy priesthood. And we kind of already talked about that. What do these priests do in the spiritual house? They offer spiritual sacrifices. Not physical sacrifices of flesh and blood animals, but spiritual sacrifices. Animated by lives that are animated by the Holy Spirit. That's what we offer to God. If you are in Christ this morning, what you are called to do is offer your entire life to God by the power of his Holy Spirit. So even that, even your offering of yourself to God is empowered by God, right? The Father plans it, the Son carries it out, and the Spirit empowers us to execute it. It's beautiful, right? But then he says this in verse 9. He says, We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has saved us so that we will proclaim his excellencies, so that we will spend the rest of our days telling people how wonderful and majestic and amazing and gracious God is. That is is our purpose. Our purpose is to live before God and others in such a way. And so I want to go back to verse 7. Because in this passage, you have both an invitation and a warning. An invitation and a warning. Peter says, so the honor is for you who trust. But for those who do not trust... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense or a rock that causes one to fall into sin. What's Peter saying? He's saying there are two building projects. You can build your life on the cornerstone, the living stone. And if you do so, If you bow the knee and you build your life on the cornerstone, then again, you're accepted by God. You're honored. You're built into this living house, the spiritual house that proclaims God's excellencies. You've received God's mercy. But if not, if you are not trusting in Christ, then Jesus becomes something else. He's not a a cornerstone. He's now a stumbling block. As one writer said, Jesus is laid across the path of human history. And everyone who comes to Jesus will fall one way or the other. Right? Believing in Jesus is not a religious preference question. It is not an amoral decision. 
It has moral consequences. Jesus is laid across your path this morning. Will you trust him? And will you build your life on the cornerstone? Or will you reject him? Will you trip over him? Will he be to you a scandal, a rock of offense? This morning, our hope is that you would trust in Jesus, that you would not reject the offer of the gospel. Again, there is it, the message of the church is not do. The message of the church is done. Jesus has accomplished everything that you need to be accepted by God. Mercy from God is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Would you receive him this morning and build your life upon him? Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for...